The following audio is from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Thanks so much, Tony. Good morning. Thank you, Torres. Metal boy. Welcome uh, to Harvest Church. My name is Kenan Vaughn. I've got the privilege of being the lead pastor here, and it is such a joy uh, to be with you this morning. If y'all want to make your way to Revelation, if you're uh, new to this book, it's the last book in your Bible. So start at the backwards and just work, start at the end, work backwards just a little bit, and you will find it in no time. And uh, we are not covering the whole book of Rev in this series. We are covering seven letters for seven churches, which happens to be chapters two and three of the book of Revelation. So uh, these two chapters, John, the apostle John, who has been, as we talked about last week, dipped in a vat of burning oil and survived it to the chagrin of Domitian, who then exiled him to a stone rock prison island called Patmos. And John is there, and he is uh, suffering, he is patiently enduring, he is waiting for Christ. And as he's waiting, he sees a vision of Christ. And the vision of Christ, um, uh, he writes down in chapter 1, and then Christ gives him, he dictates to him seven letters for seven churches, which make up chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. So we are looking at those letters, and here's what we're remembering. Every one of those letters is to a very specific, singular church set in a historical context in its day. So last week we, we talked about the church of Ephesus, and it was about how we can drift from our first love. We can still be morally sound and doctrinally sound, but have lost our love. If you got that and you were in the first century in the church of Ephesus, you would have said, gosh, that's, that's us. That's the culture of our church, because Christ was talking to them. But he's also talking to all of the church, of all of the church age, to say, beware lest this happen to you as well. And so today we're going to have a letter that Christ inks, uh, that he dictates to John, John inks it, to, Patmo, uh, to Smyrna, sorry, to the church of Smyrna. And this is a church all about suffering. This, this letter is suffering. This church is in suffering. And so what we're going to do is the same thing. There is a historical application there. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. But certainly we want to know uh, why do we suffer and what does it mean to suffer well and what does Christ have to say to those in his church today that are suffering. And so all of us, have suffered, are suffering, will suffer. This is a very relevant word this morning. And so let me pray for us, and then I'll give you some context, and we'll dive in. Father, as I've been in this text this week, I've just been reminded of so many in our body that are suffering even now. Uh, and, and that's only a fraction of probably what exists. That's just a little bit that I know of. Uh, and yet, God, the, the scriptural promise for those who desire to live godly in Christ is that there will be persecution. So I pray that we don't uh, look at these words and, um, and just think, oh, poor Smyrna, but we realize that these are words relevant to us. I pray that you would give us a fresh word um, for how to endure suffering in a way that glorifies you this morning. And so I pray as I speak, Lord, as I teach, uh, I must decrease because you must increase. And so I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, a little historical context on Smyrna. Uh, it was absolutely beautiful, so start by getting that in your mind. It was a little harbor town uh, where uh, the, the wind blew in off the sea, and, uh, and there was groves of trees everywhere, and, and the wind just would waft through, and uh, Aristides, who was an Athenian general in uh, 415 B.C., said, this must be the most ideal city on earth. He says, everywhere you go, there's groves of trees, and falling from these trees is this yellowish-brown resin, uh, which formed this kind of gummy substance, um, and, and, and from, from which they made myrrh. 
Myrrh is the spice or fragrance they would use for burial, for embalming. They didn't have the modern procedures we have, but they had this great, sweet-smelling fragrance they would use to wrap bodies and prepare bodies, and this was myrrh. That's why the city's called Smyrna, because it's loaded with myrrh. So picture this little uh, harbor town with groves of trees. The wind wafts through. Everything smells delightful. And it's set against the backdrop of Mount Pagos. And on the top of Mount Pagos is where the Smyrnans built temples. Smyrna was a hub of uh, cultural pagan worship. Um, uh, we talked about last week the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. That was their big, their big one of the seven wonders of the world. Everybody worshipped, the one to worship Artemis came to Ephesus. Well, in Smyrna, they had a myriad of gods and goddesses they had temples for. They had Aphrodite. They had Apollo. Uh, they had uh, Asclepius. They had Zeus. So they had some of the big dogs of the, of the false god and goddess world. And so people from all around the area would come to worship there. And they even had a, a temple to Homer. Uh, the, the famous uh, uh, philosopher, he was said to have been uh, born in Smyrna, so they honored him as well. But most notable to our text, they had one temple called the Diaroma, and, uh, and it, was, it was a temple to the, to the goddess of Rome. In fact, they personified Rome uh, itself as a goddess, uh, and they called her Diaroma. And in the temple of Diaroma, which was found in Smyrna, they had a, an altar right in the middle that was called Caesar's Altar. So Caesar's altar. So you had the goddess Rome and the god Caesar. And here's what people could do from all over the region. But everyone in Smyrna, every citizen of Smyrna was required to do. You had to go annually. And you had to go to the Diaroma. Um, you could worship at any of the temples. <coughs> but you had to go to the Diaroma. You had to pinch off a little frankincense. And you had to burn it on Caesar's altar. And you had to say these words. There is no god but Caesar. Okay, that's what everyone had to do. And by the way, when you finished, they gave you a certificate. Okay, just kind of like you get when you go, you know, get your car inspected. They give you something that says you're legal for the year, hopefully. Um, and they got their certificate, said you're legal, you're a citizen of Smyrna, you're okay. Now, at any point, if somebody was suspicious that maybe you were one of those, they called them atheists. They called Christians atheists because they did not hail Caesar as God. And since they thought Caesar was God, you were an atheist. If you didn't think he was one, you had no God. Well, if they thought suspicious of you maybe being one of those atheists that won't, they would say, show me your certificate. And if you couldn't produce a certificate that says you had been to Caesar's altar in the Diaroma and said there is no God but Caesar and burned your frankincense to worship him, then you were um, deemed punishable by death. Matter of fact, they would arrest you, they would give you a chance to recant, and if you wouldn't, they would usually burn you at the stake. But they would do some kind of brutal death. And this is the way many died in the church of Smyrna. Now, can you imagine living in that culture? Not many phony Christians running around in Smyrna. Not, it's not just the trendy thing to say, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, grandma was a Christian. Me too. No, you're going to die if you're going to say you're a Christian. So you've got to be real serious about it. And Jesus has a word for them. By the way, every, out of these seven letters, every one but two, he gives a rebuke. Smyrna gets no rebuke. They're simply going to get a commendation. Like, he's going to tell me he knows where they are, and he's going to encourage them to persevere. They're not going to get a rebuke. But he knows where they are, and this is relevant for us today. And you may be thinking, well, gosh, that sounds crazy, horrible, glad we're in the American church. Understand this. This is relevant today because we will experience suffering as the church of Jesus Christ. Not just as a result of the fallenness of this world, not just as a result of our own sin, which is true, but because there's an enemy who seeks to destroy us. And uh, the same enemy that existed and sought to destroy Smyrna attacks the church of Jesus Christ today. We're in his crosshairs. Um, Jesus says this, 
Blessed is he who suffers for the sake of righteousness. That ought to be everybody. Paul wrote to the Philippians, it has been granted to you not only to believe on him, Jesus, but also to suffer for his sake. To Paul, it was one of the same. If you're gonna believe in Christ, you're gonna suffer in a godless culture, this world. Uh, but here's the, here's the biggest one for me. 2 Timothy 3, 12. All, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. All will. You desire to live for Christ in a world that doesn't want to recognize him as the Lord and Savior, singular, the way, the truth, and the life, you will endure persecution and suffering, or at least you'll experience it. The question is, will you endure? So this is an incredibly relevant text. I would tell you it is a great 30,000 foot theology of suffering. Like the Bible has so much to say on suffering, but this passage kind of outlines It gives us a theology of suffering. And so what I'm going to do is as we dive into these verses, I'm going to tell you specifically what's going on in Smyrna, but I'm going to give you principles that would apply to our lives today as we too must endure suffering. And so he starts in verse 8, and Jesus says, And to the angel, that's Angelos, which is messenger, probably the pastor of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Let me give you the first principle there. First principle, it's the first thing you got to know when you're suffering. When you get bad news, um, when somebody bows up against you, when there's going to be persecution coming, when you feel the tension of opposition in your life, first thing you got to know, God is sovereign over our suffering. First thing you got to know. And I know how it is. Something bad happens to me, my family, my wife, maybe it's job related, maybe it's health related, maybe it's a personal relational issue with someone else. The first thing I wonder is, where's God in this? Like, does, like, it, like hey, hey, God, do you, do you see what's going on? Like, are you aware of the situation? Do you know, does he know, what's, is he on his throne? Is he in control? Know this, Jesus introduces himself with a little sentence in every one of these seven churches. He specifically and strategically uses this introduction of himself to the church in Smyrna because it's a church of suffering. He said, here's the words of the first and the last. This is Jesus' way of saying, I was there in the very beginning. I'll be there till the very end. You don't have to worry about me being asleep at the wheel in the midst of your suffering. I see it. I'm always present. First, last, always in my present. First thing you gotta know is he's there, and then what does he say? Who died and came to life. Jesus Christ doesn't merely know what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to conquer sin, death, and the grave. The ultimate end of your suffering, of our suffering, will be death. He's been there, and he's come out the other end, and he's alive this day. So he has authority over everything that you might suffer. Understand this. He is there, and he's in control. Did you hear me? You're in suffering today. You must know he is there and he's in control. First thing you gotta know, God is sovereign over our suffering. Now before we move to verse nine, let me, let me give you one more principle that I think um, is just biblically so true of suffering and it fits right here, but it's historically seen. It's not expositionally seen in this text, but it's historically seen in Smyrna and that's this. Number two, God's pur- God purposes our suffering for his glory and the good of those who love him. Now, that's not what the next verse says here, but that's what the story and the historical context of Smyrna tells us. The Smyrnans suffered greatly. 
They got this letter about 95 AD. Over the next uh, 200 years, they would suffer almost as no church has ever suffered. They would, I mean, they would be religiously uh, beaten, persecuted, and martyred for their faith. And it was like this, ab- this light that was ablaze, this torch ablaze for Christ in Asia Minor. And no matter how much they, like you tried to kill them, it was like you just poured gas on the flame. And the flame just kept getting bigger. And literally Smyrna was part of, part of a 200-year incredible revival of the church. And it was a leader in that revival in the Roman Empire. Like they just suffered so well that other people realized that this Jesus thing must be legit and people came to faith all over. And by the way, their witness didn't end then. It hasn't ended yet. Of these churches, there's one that remains. And it's the church of Smyrna. Modern day Izmir, Turkey. The light of Christ still burns strong in a Muslim culture. Jesus won't snuff this light out. As long as you're there and you're willing to stand for me in a perverse, idolatrous, pagan culture, you will remain a witness. That will be your privilege. Church of Smyrna, still burning today. Listen, everywhere in scripture we see suffering. Genesis to Revelation, you see it. And in the midst of God's people suffering, they often don't know why. We often don't know why. We get to read the whole story. But imagine being Joseph abandoned to prison, two years, falsely accused. You didn't do the deal they said you did with Potiphar's wife. You were, you were trying to get out of there. And yet two years, like we just kind of glaze up, two years he's in prison. And what's Joseph got to be thinking? Go back to number one, what's he got to be thinking? Is God over this? Like, does he see me? Has he forgotten me? Is he sovereign over this? Like, does he have a purpose? Is he in control? And two years later, when Joseph gets called up and he uh, is second man to Pharaoh, reconciling God's people in a time of famine to safety in Egypt, what does it say in Genesis 50? That, that which man meant for evil in his life, God meant for good. Lazarus had to die. Mary and Martha, when Jesus comes, said, why didn't you come earlier? You heard the news in time and you waited. You let him die. If you had come, he would have lived. Jesus didn't say that's not true. He just wept. Just wept. He ached over the suffering ordained by his father for Lazarus. Here's why. He said, Lazarus, come out. And when Lazarus raised from the dead, there were many who believed the gospel. Thank you, Lazarus, for enduring so that many might believe. Mary didn't know. Martha didn't know. Lazarus didn't know. God knew. Hey, can I tell you, this plays out in all of our lives. And, uh, and oftentimes, I don't know the purposes of God in my suffering. I always ask, God, are you there? I just need, just need to know you're there. I just need to know you are purposing this for your glory and the good of those. I don't have to know how. don't have to know why. I just need to know it's true. And it is, the Bible is emphatic that it's true. You know, when my father died when I was 16, I asked that, that was the, that was, I was a seedling in the faith. And the only prayer I had for those three months that he was sick was, God, please heal him brain cancer. Please heal him. Please heal him. I'm an infant in the faith. Dad died. And I remember it was this moment where, gosh, is God hearing my prayer? Does he care? And could he have healed him? Could he not have healed him? And I had to wrestle. And it was a testing of my faith. Now here's what I want to tell you about that. By the way, many of the suf- much of the suffering we endure, I don't know that we'll ever get to know why God got allowed or even purposed that suffering in our lives until glory. We will know one day. I don't know that you're always going to get answers on this side of glory. Sometimes you live long enough, I think you get shadows. I think you get some glimpses, uh, some clues as to what God was doing. I think I've gained a clue of what God was doing in my father's death. Dad had come to Christ, recently had become a convert. 
Would have loved to see what kind of a witness he could have been on that rugby team. Would have loved to see uh, what kind of a witness he would have been in our neighborhood, at work, in our family. Would have loved it. God had a different purpose. God took him to glory early. Now, I don't know. I, I still don't stand before you fully knowing the purposes of God. One day I will. I don't today. But I have an idea. Because in that time in my life, and dad was my hero, and really through his sickness is where he got close to God, especially close to God, and it's also where I got close to God. I was going through the motions, I was in church, uh, Jesus was a distant savior, I had prayed a prayer, assumed I was saved, but likely I was on my road to try to complete college, work in our family business with my dad, with my granddad, that was kind of the trajectory I was on, and yet because of the death of my dad, because of the incredible pain, because of the ache in my soul, I fell prostrate before the Lord. Quite literally at times, I was so empty and despondent and desperate, only God could heal me, and he did. He sustained me, he brought his presence, and what happened in those months of dad's death and the ensuing months was I went from Jesus is a, a, is a concept, he's a, he's, a, he's a savior that's distant, to he have a personal, intimate relationship with him. There was intimacy now. There was a savior I trusted. There was a best friend I knew. There was an abiding in Christ that has since defined my life. My life in Christ would never be the same. Matter of fact, I would tell you, I don't think I'd be standing here today before you as a pastor preaching the gospel had I not had that experience. I don't know the full purposes of God, but the longer I live, I'm learning just trusting. Because here's what's true about suffering, cover to cover, God purposes our suffering for his glory and the good of those who love. Now, if we stopped there, it's enough. Yes, he sees it. Yes, he's in control of it. And he even purposes what we don't understand for our good and his glory. That's enough. But we get three more verses. And I hope this is an encouragement to those of us who are in suffering this morning. Number nine, or verse nine, I know your tribulation and your poverty. I know the word know there is not the word I know about. It's not Jesus going, yep, I got the mail on that one. One of the angels let me know. I know about what you're going through. Not the word. The word is I know as in I've experienced. I know where you are. Like literally, we have a sympathetic savior. He know, let's put number three, truth number three. We have a savior who's been there and will lead us through it. Do we have a savior that has suffered everything known to man? We do. There's nothing you will face that he can't look at you and say, not not just say, sorry about that. Put a little dirt on it. Get your little bowl, suck it up. We have a savior that looks and the first thing you get is compassion. The first thing you get from Christ is, I know what it is to be there. You, You scared? Are you lonely? Are you confused, physical pain, emotional distress? Jesus says, I know, I know what it is. I know what it is to face all of those things. I know it's to stare death in the face and have to go right into the nails, I know. Even if you were to have them pluck the beard from your face and put a crown of thorns on your brow and whip you, beat you, mock you, spat upon you, drive nails into your wrist and ankles and hang you on a cross to be crucified, even if it happens, he knows. And so when you cry out to God and say, I am afraid and I feel alone and I am scared and I am facing death, you have a God that looks back and says, 
I know. First thing he says, I'm with you. I know. And listen, you rest in me because I know how to get through. I was dead. I'm alive. You rest in me. I'll take you right through it. And he knows the way. My kids, everything from a skinned knee to a gashed head to a strikeout in a baseball game, everything they experience that brings physical or emotional pain in their lives, they will come to me. Sometimes there's tears, oftentimes there's screaming, a lot of times there's blaming one, two, or all three of their brothers. And one of the first things I've learned to do as a parent is not see how quick I can make it okay or you know, tell them just to suck it up. Or I mean, there's probably a time and a place for a lot of these things, but one of the things I've noticed is if I will listen and relate, and most of what they've experienced at this stage in their life, I too have experienced. Skid knees, strike out to lose games, you know, rejection, all rejection common to man, I've been there. And I say to them, I remember doing that. Buddy, I know, I know exactly what that felt like. I remember the first time it was up to me and the grounder went through my legs and we lost. Matter of fact, I do remember that. I don't wanna talk about it, but I remember it. <laughs> but buddy, I remember. And you know what they do? <laughs> You, wait, you do, you do? Yeah, yeah, what'd, what'd you do? Let me tell you what I did. Kept working, had to realize that my identity's not gonna be in always making the big play at the big time, like I'm never gonna, that's, and, and, if, and if it was, like that'd be a real up and down way to live, I just realized I'm gonna go out there, I'm gonna do my best, have fun, and I'm gonna learn things in victory, I'm gonna learn things in defeat, and it makes the times you do succeed that much sweeter because you don't always succeed in this kind of funny thing. And they start going, wait, okay, 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 really? Yeah, I've been right there. Listen, you stick with me. I'm gonna take you right through it. Okay. That's our privilege with Christ. We come to him. God, I don't know what I'm, I don't understand what I'm facing. I don't know why I'm facing. The first thing we get is, I know what it is to face that. Wait, you, wait, you do? Yes, been there, all the way to the end, all the way to the wicked end, all the way into the darkness and then into the light. You get close to me, we'll go right through it. That's the promise we get. Isn't that sweet? He knows us and he knows right where we are. He doesn't just know about it. He's not just getting the heavenly report. He's been there and he says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty. This is not the word for like uh, blue collar, pania. This is the word tokos, which means you're destitute. Like you have nothing, complete poverty. And he says, parenthetically, but you are rich. Such an interesting phrase. And then he goes on to say, and the slander of those that say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Here's what he says. You're being persecuted by Rome to the death. You have nothing. You're being made slaves. You're being killed. And on top of that, you got these people that say they're Jews, but they're not. Here's what he meant by that. Paul would write in uh, Romans 2, 28 and 29, to be a Jew is not merely ethnically to be a Jew. It's not merely outward. It's not merely external. Paul goes to great lengths in that whole chapter to say circumcision is no longer just external, it's no longer outward. Circumcision of the heart is necessary to be of the people of God. It's inward. It is a repentance and a belief in righteousness apart from you that ultimately would come in the promised one, the Messiah. So the Jew, it's not, you're not a people of God just because you're ethnic Jew. You gotta repent, circumcision of the heart, and you gotta avail yourself to the grace of God available in Christ. Now, the Jews had a problem with this. That's why throughout the New Testament, everywhere Paul goes and preaches, he starts in the synagogue, and what do they do? 
He may last two months, he may last a year, they kick him out. They reject that message. Even Jesus, when he's preaching the gospel, they accused him of doing the works he did by the power of Beelzebub. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 12? You are children of your father, the devil. He would weep over Jerusalem. But he says when you reject God, when you reject the Messiah of God, and when you accuse and persecute his people, you're a synagogue, all right? You're a synagogue of Satan. So get it. Smyrna Church. The Romans are burning you at the stake. The Jews are slandering you. They were actually the ones telling on the Christians to the Romans. Jesus goes, I know exactly where you are. You got it coming at you from all sides. And guess what? You are rich. What? You are rich? Like that's the parentheses between Roman and persecution and Jewish slandering? Rich. They have nothing but Christ. The only thing the Smyrnans have, the Christian, the church in Smyrna has, that the Romans don't have and the Jews don't have, is Jesus. They belong to Jesus. That's the only distinguishing mark. That's all they have. And Jesus says, you're rich, which is him to say, not only can I bring you through this. Jesus doesn't just get you through. He makes you rich in the midst of your suffering. How so? Well, Your present suffering is a down payment on eternal glory. Jesus said in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled by this world. Don't get too down. I know it's sad. I know it hurts. I know it's painful. Nobody likes suffering. Don't be too troubled. Here's why. I am going to go ahead of you. My father's house has many rooms. I will prepare a place for you. Wow. I will go and I'll prepare a place in the, in, in the mansion of God, in the presence of God where there is no more fear, death, suffering, no more pain, no more tears. I'm gonna go there and I've got a spot for you all eternity. If we can only see what Jesus sees just for an instant. Like, like if, we, if, if we could just have a glimpse of glory to come. How that would change our suffering today. I think we would quit running around trying to stack piles of cash like squirrels uh, gathering nuts for the winter. I think we'd be like the guy in the parable Jesus tells who finds a treasure in a field and says, I'll give up everything I've got to buy that field because of that treasure. And the treasure is Christ. You get Christ, you get it all. You don't have Christ, you will one day have nothing What is it worth to have that room reserved for you in heaven? What's it worth enduring? What you go through today is a down payment on eternal glory, what you will receive. Can I ask you a question? What do you think the guy that's in hell today at this very moment, what do you think he would give for your room in heaven? If he had one more moment on this earth, I can promise you what he would do. He would forsake everything else he put his trust in during his time on earth, and he would repent of his sin, and he would not just profess Christ as Lord, but cling. And he'd say, you can kill me any way you want, just let me go to the Father's house. Do you understand me? Understand. Anything you hope in that's of this world will fail you. 
You hope in Christ. He is a treasure. He's your hope in suffering. Put that on the screen. Truth number four. Christ is our treasure. He is our hope in suffering. Jesus knows right where you are. and He whispers, you are rich. The reason I know this is true for every one of us is because the Smyrnans had nothing. There's nothing else to base that statement off of. They had only Christ. And he said, you're rich. Let me give you another one here as we keep reading in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. In other words, it's about to get worse. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, let me tell you this. Uh, In that day, I believe that that was true. I think it's a literal statement. I think Satan is behind their, um, uh, their temptation. I think he's the enemy that has them in his crosshairs, and I think they will literally suffer for 10 days. There'll be a literal deal where some of them will be thrown into prison for 10 days. Endure it. Don't punt the faith. Cling to me. Some of you are even going to die because he's about to say, be faithful unto death. Okay, and, and, and so by the way, hear this. Uh, make sure I don't forget to say this. Gee, none of these promises are promises that our earthly or temporal suffering will be minimized, made more bearable, or altogether healed on this side of glory. You're not going to see it on the screen. It's not what he gives to Smyrna. It's not what the Bible says. We're not given, just make it through the short season, and you'll have like a retirement of prosperity. You don't get it. All you get is this life will be full of suffering. If you desire to live godly in Christ, you'll be persecuted. The reason it's temporary is because one day it'll end and it might be faithful unto, it may end at death, but it will end. The suffering will end because death will be the end of the suffering, not the beginning as it will be for those who do not belong to Christ. Let me give you a fifth one. Our suffering is temporary. Now hear what I say. I don't mean two days, two months, two years. Maybe God can heal. He does it all the time. But he won't ultimately heal until the suffering of this world is over when we die. Then we're promised healing. That's why the promise is the suffering is temporary and it will reveal the sincerity of our faith. I want to show you what he just said to Smyrna that we just read. Don't fear what's coming. It's going to be 10 days, so, so there's your idea of temporary. The suffering is temporary. It will not last. By the way, he names who's behind it. The devil is behind it. Now, I admit, we do plenty of foolish things. We sin and bring suffering upon ourselves. But there is a spiritual warfare side of our suffering. There is a side where you are desiring to live godly in Christ, and yet there's opposition, there's persecution, there's suffering. What is that? Satan. The enemy. He's named By the way, we see if you take Revelation 12 and you kind of use it as a panorama of the career of Satan, you see he's uh, portrayed in that chapter as a dragon who's trying to kill this baby boy being born to this woman of light. Woman of light, Israel. Baby boy, Jesus. It says he'll rule the nations with an iron fist. That's Christ. That's prophesied of Christ. Dragon tries to kill him. The child is swooped away. Satan can't kill the child. So he attacks the nation. The nation is protected. So what does he do? He attacks the people of God, those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's his career. That's what he does. If you're going to hold to the testimony of Jesus amidst a culture that doesn't, you will be persecuted. First Peter 5 says he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to 
devour or destroy. Look, if you're suffering, here's what I tell you. You may be right in the crosshairs of Satan. Like he's attacking you because you are standing as a luminary in a crooked and depraved generation. You're salt that makes this world salty. Praise God if that's the case. You may be suffering because you're so asleep at the wheel that God in his mercy is awakening you to your need for him. If that's the case, praise God. You know what the more troubling question for me is? If you're not suffering. Like, if there is no suffering to speak of in your life, I just wanna say, why not? By the way, I don't know the answer but I know the theological truth that Satan will oppose you and you will be persecuted and you will suffer if you stand firm from Christ. Why not? Has he silenced you? Are you burning your frankincense at the altar of Caesar in the diaroma of our day? Are you blending in? Is your faith a quiet faith? If you're not suffering, why not? You know what the text says here? Um, for 10 days you left tribulation, he says, some of you, that you may be tested. Suffering tests the validity, the sincerity of the faith of the believer. A phony will not suffer. If you were a false Christian in Smyrna, you couldn't wait to admit that it wasn't for real. You'll save your neck. You'll deny Christ in a heartbeat. How, how do you even know if someone's ultimately a Christian? Because I understand that Christ died for me on the cross, that I might have salvation. No, that's what a Christian believes. How do I know you're one? Well, I've received that truth. Okay, maybe you're one. Well, my life's been radically changed from who I was to who I am now. Ah, you're probably one. Well, then how do you know I'm one? The only way I'll know you're one, and the only way you'll know I'm one, is through the suffering that's guaranteed in this world that we will persevere. The false Christian will be squeezed out. By the way, he won't lose his salvation. He will have never had it. Understand, the Christian perseveres. Not perfectly, by the way. Did Peter cut and run at one point? Peter cut and ran. But you know what? He came back and he died really well. John Mark cut and ran. He came back and was very useful to the kingdom. The Christian perseveres. Understand that our suffering is temporary and it will reveal the sincerity of our faith. And then Jesus says, be faithful unto death. How long do I have to endure? How long must we, um, must we hold fast to the testimony of Jesus in the midst of persecution and suffering? When is my respite? This is where the Bible gives you, the Bible doesn't give you and I a literal 10 days. But here's what you do know. The very last suffering you will ever endure if you belong to Christ is that final breath you take on this earth. When that 1,500 centimeters cubed of vital capacity empties out of your lungs, when you exhale one final time and that little machine flatlines and goes beep, and you pass into darkness, and in a moment, you're in the light. And it is literally Christ and the angelic host there to meet you. And Paul says, to be depart from this body is to be alive with Christ. In a moment, he's there to meet you. 
That last vital capacity leaving your lungs, that was the last suffering you'll ever know. But how horrid to be a non-believer. And you'll know that same suffering. You'll know that last exhale. You'll have those 1,500 centimeters leave your lungs as well. But you don't belong to Christ. You pass out of the consciousness of this world into darkness. And there is no light. Instead, there's a voice that says, depart from me. I never knew you. And the darkness never ends. And there is an eternal separation from God. Jesus says, be faithful unto death. You stay with me till that last breath. And I'll have you with me for all eternity. Amen? Let me give you one more. He says here, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. Christ will turn our suffering into sheer joy for all of eternity. Sheer joy. I'm going to give you the crown, he says, of life. By the way, the word, the word there is not uh, diademos, which is what we sang about. Did you all hear that uh, hymn we sang right before I preached? Crown him with many crowns. That's diadems. That's a golden crown with the jewels. No Christian in the, in the New Testament is given a diadem. That, that's given only for, to Christ. The crown that Christians receive is the word stephanos. It's a garland. It's a wreath garland. Listen when it's given. It's given by a judge to an athlete. The athlete has to have finished the race. And it's given to him for running well in the race that he has finished. Understand, Jesus says, you endure to the end. I will give you a Stephanus, a garland. I will be there to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you know Interestingly enough, who the first Christian martyr is in our Bible, 33, 34 AD, just after Christ, one is persecuted in his name, he refuses to recant. Do you know what his name is? Stephen. That means crowned one, Stephanos. Stephen would not let go. He held fast to the testimony of Jesus and he had a vision as he was dying. And the vision is, he's being stoned. He looks up and he sees Christ, listen to me, standing at the right hand of God. Now, you don't ever see that in Scripture. You see Christ seated at the right hand of God. The work is finished. And yet, when Stephen is being stoned, Christ comes to his feet. As if to give a standing ovation to Stephen as he gives him his Stephanos. Well done. He receives him into his glory. Your suffering is finished. Receive the crown of life. For you're forever in my presence. In our faith is a history from Jesus on the cross to Stephen 2,000 years to today, it's a history of those who have endured incredible suffering with hope and with joy and with peace because what Jesus says to Smyrna is true. You be faithful to the death. You will suffer. It'll even get worse. You stay faithful. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm going to give you the crown of life. You'll be with me forever. And he says at the end, 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. In Revelation 20, if we were to go there, it says death and Hades will one day give up their dead. All the dead go before the great white judgment throne. There's a judge. And it says the books will be opened. And it says those whose names are not found in the book of life, they will be thrown into a lake of fire. And here's what it says. That is the second death. It is appointed Hebrews for every man to die once and then to receive judgment. There's a second death, but it is reserved for those who do not belong to Christ. You hold to Christ till that last vital capacity exhale. You hold to him to the end. You will not experience the second death. What does that do for you in suffering today? I can rejoice. I can consider it pure joy when I go through sufferings of all kinds because it brings a genuine steadfastness to my faith, which proves that I am worthy of the Stephanus of Christ. That one day when I die, and we'll all die, I won't experience a second death. I will be brought into glory and have sheer joy. Golly. That is a biblical theology of suffering. And there's so many stories of those who understood it. Uh, I read of a Puritan named John Bradford, 16th century. He was being burned at the stake with a group of Christians. And uh, just before they lit the fires, a young man in their group was weeping. And John Bradford, I love that someone recorded this. He looks over and he says, young man, no need to weep. For in a matter of moments, we will be eating a merry supper with our king. Now you, can, you, you, you get that, you can endure anything in this world. Jerome, 14th century, they piled logs at his feet just before they lit the flame. He picked a log up and he kissed it. Put it down. This one's gonna send me to glory. Let me, let me close telling you guys the, the, the coolest thing. This letter was received by the church at Smyrna, and its leader was a man named Polycarp. He was the bishop of Smyrna. Received in about 95, he's the, he's the young minister of the church there. Fast forward about 50 years, and... Um, there's a gladiatorial arena day uh, near Smyrna, and uh, the crowd begins to chant wildly, down with the atheists. The Jews, the synagogue of Satan, they said, hey, bring forward Polycarp. Like, go get Polycarp. Proconsul says, go get him. If Polycarp can recant, we can snuff out the witness for Christ right here, right now in this place. And they go get Polycarp, he's 86 years old, and the man who's, uh, this, uh, this little centurion guard who's escorting Polycarp to the stadium literally begs him, says, old man, you are a gentle and loving old man. There's no reason for any of us to see what's about to happen to you. You don't need to do this. Just, just pay homage to Caesar. We don't want to see you die. You're a good man. You're a gentleman. Polycarp says, 80 and six years has my king been faithful to me? I will not be unfaithful to him now. And they bring him into the arena, true story. And before all the throngs of the masses, the proconsul says to him, Polycarp, recant of your faith, or I will unleash the beast upon you. And Polycarp said, I cannot do it, do what you must. And the proconsul said, if you are not afraid of the beast, then I will we will burn you at the stake. Prepare the fire. And Polycarp said this for all to hear. 
He says, should I really fear the flame that burns for an hour and is soon extinguished? And should you not fear the flame that burns in judgment for all of eternity to those who do not know Christ? I must not recant. You must repent. An hour later, Polycarp is with the Lord. 2,000 years later, the gospel still goes forth in Turkey. Because he understood, you stay with me to the end. Stephanus, he received his reward that day. You'll suffer. Suffer well. First Peter First service didn't get this. First Peter, just listen. First Peter 5.10. And after you have suffered a little while, a little, how long, Torres? A little while. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Listen, he will himself restore you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you and he will establish you in his presence. Suffer well. Father, we thank you that in our faithlessness, in our lack of understanding, in our weakness, you are strong, you are faithful, you understand. God, let us not grow weary in doing good. Let us not tire in our desire to live godly lives in Christ. Let us persevere. Let us be tried and called worthy. Let us stand before you in a glorious day to receive a Stephanos that we finished the race. Paul said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. There is before me a crown of righteousness laid up not only for me, but all who have longed for your appearing. Let us long for it. And let that day be the great joy of our salvation. Let us live every one of these days of suffering in light of that day of sheer joy. I pray it be true of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna take communion. The crackers and the juice represent the body and blood of Christ. The ultimate sacrifice, he suffered that we don't have to be afraid of a second death. We can have salvation in him. If you don't know Christ today, if you're out there going, my goodness, uh, I I couldn't pay attention anymore after you asked us about the guy in hell today because if I died today, that's where I would be. Will you come talk to me? I'm right over here. We have elders in between all these gaps. We have elders and lay leaders in the back, Connection Central. Just come talk to one of us. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to pray with you in a prayer of repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. And then the truth of that confession, the truth of that profession will be proved out all the days of your suffering life where you hold fast to Christ because he holds fast to you. So maybe today be the day of salvation for someone here. The tables are now open. Thank you for listening to the audio from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Feel free to make copies and distribute this content, but please do not charge for those copies.